0: welcome back to another edition of the fried egg podcast today's episode is powered by td ameritrade every stroke counts on the scorecard and every penny counts in the market that's why td ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises so you're free to swing with confidence visit tdameritrade.com fried egg member sipc we are back with another edition of the Friday podcast and I am joined with uh, Garrett Morrison, managing Hello. editor of the Friday. Hey, Garrett, hey. You're back. I'm um, back. Su- successful uh podcast debut with Bob Crosby. Got a lot of great feedback. I was I was I don't know where I was. A lot of people are telling me they loved it though. Uh
1: that's that's great to hear. Um Bob was an awesome guest and so it's all downhill from here.
0: Hey, you know, at least you, you'll have those, uh, the glory of your, of your first time. You That's know? right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, today we've got Kevin Moore coming on. He is a university of Georgia mathematics professor. Um, also runs a business doing golf course strategy. So I think this was inspired by Rory's comments about setup and strategy, uh, this weekend from the Dunhill Links. So, Garrett, you, you've got more on Kevin and kind of the basis for this conversation? Yeah, sure. I mean,
1: Kevin is just a, a really um, good and unique thinker about golf in general. Um, he sort of has a foot in both camps where he's a competitive golfer with a real pedigree and he advises competitive golfers on, on how to manage their games. But at the same time, he's a lover of golf course architecture. Um, so he should be a really interesting person to, um, to talk to. Uh, so, you know, in addition to being a, a, a professor of mathematics education at, at Georgia, the founder of the, um, course management company you talked about squares to circles. He's also involved with, a new club and finally he'll be a participate participant in our round table at the thoroughbred which takes place on saturday october 12th at aiken golf club so um that should be a really interesting discussion as well
0: yeah yeah that should be fun we'll have kai golby there too so an architect so that should be it will be an interesting discussion about design and uh and strategy uh with those two and kai uh guy was a great player in his own regard he played in uh college he's uh cousins with the haases and his uh father won the masters yes so he knows a little bit about competitive golf
1: yeah all
0: right so
1: here we go here's our conversation with kevin moore
2: the fried egg requires a different technique what you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green
0: Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a green side bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a, a fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded
1: fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit.
0: Kevin! how are you Andy I'm doing good how are you oh just swell you know just swell wonderful day here in chicago um what's the new uh what's the new down in georgia how's the uh how's the golf season going the
2: golf season's 95 and hot um we're, we haven't got that fall break yet but that still means we can play a lot of golf uh unlike you all we don't have to worry about our season running out so I'll keep on playing through the entire year while you uh suffer through that Chicago winter
1: that seemed like an unnecessary swipe there, you know
2: I mean we gotta take it where we can get it. you know we struggle all summer, so we have to we have to bask in the glory of our November, December, and Januarys.
0: yeah, luckily, my golf game is uh is making me long for a hiatus i, I I'm playing lousy golf, so it's no. about time to hang' him up for a while. I'll get to see it in person on Thursday it's true right around the corner yeah you're not gonna get to hang it
1: up that that soon right we're all we're all coming to kevin's neck of the woods
2: he's just walking me into a a hustle right there is what he's doing i
0: got i got a two two two-way mess going so (laughs) (laughs) i'm not hustling (laughs) anyway welcome to the club then you're
2: not you're not my you're not my teammate then if you have that going (laughs) yeah
0: It's, uh, so yeah. Um, anyways, this weekend, big comments from Rory McIlroy. When he talks, everybody listens. And, uh, he went after the European tour for setup and saying, it's not separating the good players, uh, you know, it's not separating good and bad shots or good and bad shots enough. And, uh, then went into some strategy piece. So we figured who'd be better to talk to than Kevin Moore.
2: Yeah, you're right. When he talks, I, I typically listen with just nodding along, but these ones were a little perplexing in some points, Uh, a whole lot to unpack with some of the things that he said.
1: What did you find perplexing?
2: Yeah. I mean, Rory, he's been one of the biggest, I guess, in terms of professional golfers, proponents of, you know, those of us that are, are hearkening back to some of the older days and like to just play with the, the thought experiments of what, what older technology looked like. And he's spoken, you know, his, his message often reverberates with that, but, you know, this one, he went in on course setup, um, and he sort of conflated two things he doesn't typically conflate in terms of mixing strategy and shot making along with course setup, um, which has really made it a, a sort of a jumbled mess, if I'm being honest. Um, I think a lot of it was in reaction to unhappiness with his play and everything. Um, obviously, he's a very articulate and very intelligent golfer. Um, but yeah, just in terms of the, the comments that were there, there's just a whole lot that was meshed together.
1: Right. And he said at one point that you you play with more strategy at PGA Tour courses or that the soft setups on the European Tour demand less in the way of strategy than American courses on the PGA Tour do. Um, I, I, I'm wondering, what, what do you think he means by strategy there? As somebody who works with you know, elite golfers, really good golfers on how to approach a a course tactically. What do you think he means by that?
2: Honestly, that's a hard question to answer because there's a lot of different directions we could go with that. You know, we could look at the different setups across the European tour, which I see a wide variety of golf courses, probably arguably much wider than the PGA tour sees, right? But they have a lot of courses more in line with the Trinity Forest than we have one Trinity Forest. Um, where they also range into their tree line dog leg bunkered courses as well on the european tour that we see all across the the pga tour so maybe i mean he definitely could have been speaking just relative to his recent experiences what he spoke to with renaissance and in the old course in Carnoustie, uh as well as king's Barnes. they didn't see the toughest conditions so you run into those courses and it's not a very penalizing game there's not Honestly, for a pro a pro tour player on those courses, under those conditions, there's not a whole lot of thinking going on in a lot of cases. So you just hit it out there, you know where line you're taking, hit it, find it, hit it again. Where certainly on a more penal style golf course, like the typical PGA tour course, where they're bunkered at 270, 290, 310, playing into greens that are decently bunkered, possible water hazards. There's some thinking going on where, okay, there's a if I miss this shot by 5 to 10 yards, there's a decent penalty to be paid um paid and it's also an aerial game so there's a little bit more control where on his most recent experiences where it's a little bit more of a ground game you have a lot less control so you know where you're hitting it and from there it's just take the rub of the green and and go from there um so maybe you know maybe he was tainted a little bit by his recent experiences and so not really thinking about the whole landscape of the european tour uh could be one case, but it's certainly the case in the PGA tour. There is thinking that goes involved just because of the, or along and around just because of the penalties that exist across most golf courses there.
1: What do you think that thinking consists of typically on a PGA tour course? Because it, it doesn't seem like it's thinking in the sense that golf course architecture nuts are accustomed to thinking about it. What, what type of thinking goes into it? Is it, is it club selection primarily?
2: certainly club selection i mean teeing decisions is a huge one right what do i take off the tee and what's the thinking that goes in the, into that uh and there are a lot of decision okay how much is if i push up a driver because i'm always going to start there let's start with driver off the tee and think about that is there a penalty in play and if there's not a penalty in play the decision's done all right we're we're sending driver and we're going to play off that uh, now, if there is a penalty on in play, well, how significant is that penalty? How much of a corridor do I have where the penalty area exists? And if there's enough there, then it's like, okay, let me step back a club and say what, where does that club put me and go from there. Right? The objective is with today's game, with the way the rough is, the aerial – in the um, in supporting an aerial game in the greens, get it up as far as possible, as much as possible. You know, And that's 90% of the golf courses they play. And then obviously playing into the green – Obviously, it depends on the length playing into it, but typically these players are hitting mid irons to short irons in. So it's a, it's a pretty aggressive game, even from there, with the, soft, the softness of the greens, which again, that was perplexing when he talks about firmness, where a lot of the, a lot, a decent amount of the course condition on the PGA Tour is soft. Now, you do have your exceptions. Murfield gets pretty firm uh, as one example when they can get it there. This past year was definitely not that with the rain, but, you know, Jack likes to firm that up. I'm sure a lot of his renovation that's going to happen is going to be geared towards always having that, the conditions. But a lot of the courses, the greens are soft enough that, you know, pins are pretty accessible even when they're tucked. And at worst, you're just going a couple feet inside of them, um, you know, five to ten feet inside of a pin towards the fat side of the green and playing from there. Um, So a little bit of thinking on that, but
0: not a ton. Yeah, to me it seems like the – One of the courses I hear the most talk about strategy on is uh, the WGC Mexico course, Chapultepec, which is all kind of, do you hit drive? And to me, just from my observation, it seems like that for the professional golfers is when it, when it impacts the tee shot, that's how they, what they feel like strategy really is. That's kind of the way they think about strategy versus an architecture nut who thinks about angles and different things
2: yeah i think that's completely accurate and it you know i have that architect nut as well as strategy and math nut inside of me and it drives the architect nut inside of me crazy right that the best way to challenge a tour player thinking off the tee is to have penalty areas you know call it trees call it bunkers or whatever all the way up and down the hole to force them to make a decision of how aggressive they want to play. And Chipolopec is a great example of that where, you know, we know from dispersion driver, three wood, two iron, it doesn't matter that much left or right. You're still getting pretty wide with all three of those clubs that say, so now you have a situation where, well, all three of them are going to bring in trees. So what do I decide to do? How much do I take into that account? And we saw a very different play down at uh, Mexico and two. To be supportive of that, we saw a nice variance in leaderboard in terms of how people played the course. Uh, you know, maybe a little better than we'd see at other tournaments. So obviously, still still privileges pushing up a lot of cases, but we saw some nice variety there, uh, more so than maybe other tournaments.
1: And yet, at Chapultepec, the winners have generally been bombers. But you saw variance in the kind of top tier.
2: Yeah, I think. I mean. Everybody, I mean, everybody that works in a strategy business will admit this, right? It's You're never going to get around it being a bomber's paradise, right? Bombers are all, that's going to be a skill set that's always, well, especially with today's technology, just going to be rewarded. And maybe someone will crack the code of how to really break against that. uh, But you're going to see that. So, you know, that's just where we're at in terms of a game. And you're going to expect to see a bomber as a winner probably more often than not. But, yeah, really what's important is looking at the top 10, the top 20, right? Because let's face it, like, the guys winning tournaments, they're all around great players, right? Most week in, week out. Yeah, we get a couple of crap shots that come out and they just win a tournament and disappear or they get hot. You know, um, this point's been made with Cameron Champ and Andy's made this point several times that he's that type of player that will probably get hot for a couple of weeks. And if he does that every year, he'll probably get a victory as well, right? Because he's got enough of a game and the distance is privileged that he'll get there. But by and large, the winners are just great golfers, you know, and the week they win. Yes, distance helps put them in position, but they also are maybe outliers in the putting or outliers in approach relative to their normal game. So they're at least making it up in other areas. And then across the top 10 or top 20, if we can see variance there, I mean, that's just more compelling pro golf, right? If at least we're seeing everybody up on the leaderboard being a little different, it's a little bit more watchable, um, at least to some of us that pay attention to that stuff.
0: Yeah. I think that's a misconception of, is like the, you know, Hey, like this guy won cause he hit it far. But like one of the things with distance is that it's a constant skill, like almost every other skill in golf is variable. Like you might putt bad today, putt well tomorrow, you know, you might be really accurate with your driver today, not tomorrow. Same with your irons, but with the, with the distance, you have that every single day you go to the golf course which is something that I think some people like tend to, and that's always going to be a huge advantage if you're long, but it seems to me that it's become more and more advantageous as, you know, as players have gotten longer in accuracy, you know, it's to keep it on the plan. There's less downsides to hitting it far today than there used to be <coughs> or hitting it hard. So to say.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, the hitting it far is one comment we could expand on, but then just hitting it hard is another one, right? That, bring, that brings in the technology issues and what the technology enables to, us to do in terms of maximizing um, and optimizing the way we hit the ball and what the ball spin rate does, right? That's the big question. Well, if we went back to, say, Persimmon uh, and a wound ball, well, what would hitting it hard look like? Could you act, What would optimizing everything look like, and would it be manageable in a way that you could still play the game at a very competitive level? Because to your point, like in terms of hitting it far, you know, when we look at the strokes gained data, and I don't know what it'd say over the last two years, but, you know, it's basically an approach where it's basically trended to where like to be a top player, it's almost 40% approach and 40% driving. You know, maybe you could argue 35% and 35% just to be in that sort of upper echelon area. And the question is, is that good for the game, right? Like, is... You know, if I just said, okay, from a mathematical standpoint, what would be like Rory's comment was what a complete player, I think. Well, what would be a complete player be? The best players in the world, we or the like their trends would be okay, 25% strokes gained attributed to putting, 25% strokes gained attributed to around the green, 25% approach, 25% driving, or you can match the percentages to the number of strokes played from those positions, right? So, like, if you play. 25% or 30% of your shots from around the green are on it. Well, 30% of a winner's uh, category should come from those areas. You know, maybe that's something, you know, that's fun to think about in terms of what would we want a complete player to be and what we, how would we want that privilege?
0: It's it's it, Rory's comments too, when he talk when he talk about complete player and I think this gets lost sometimes when everybody talks about Rory is like, he is one of the, you know, albeit sometimes he struggles on the green. He is as complete of a player as, as you get on the PGA tour last year, he ranked in the top 25 in every strokes game category. And I think he's the only player that did that. Adam Scott was close, but nobody else, you know, nobody else really was close outside of Adam Scott to doing that.
2: Yeah. I mean, going back to Rory's comments, right. He, it's good that he's speaking out and I would love to know how much of it comes from a place of him acknowledging and understanding, I, that if there was ever such a call rollback or just stopping where we're at, like that only benefits him. It benefits a player of his caliber, someone like Adam Scott, the Tiger Woods uh, of people, right, that have the complete games. And, I mean, a Ricky. I think Ricky Fowler is a great example as well. That someone that all around is a good player, does a lot of things really well, can hit a lot of golf shots and sees a lot of golf shots, right? Those guys see golf shots more than other guys in terms of just feeling comfortable in a golf, golf course and seeing a shape. Uh, and how much they would benefit from something that brought back more shape into the game. And what would we, how would we see that correlate or associate um, with different strokes gain data uh, and the statistics behind things?
1: So one of the things that became pretty clear from Rory's comments is that he is thinking of strategy primarily in terms of what we talked about earlier, what club you play off the tee should you hit driver every time he seems to think that on on european tour course setups that there's not much of a question on the tee as to what you're going to do and that means that he's thinking of strategy primarily along the vertical axis right the y axis of a hole how deep into the hole should i push the ball um in order to get the best results Architecture geeks, on the other hand, tend to think of strategy more laterally, right along the x-axis. What side of the fairway do I want to be on in order to open up a view of or an angle into the green? Now, as somebody who has a foot in both camps, an analytics camp as well as in the golf architecture geekery camp, um, I, I'm curious what you think about the the claim that a lot of analytics-driven course management folks make about hunting angles and the fact that that's not something that anybody should do On a golf course right that you shouldn't be trying to get to a particular side of the fairway that you should just sort of uh, pick a target that makes it least likely that you're going to find yourself in a penalty hazard and that essentially lateral strategy as architecture folks have thought about it for over a century is irrelevant Uh, do you agree with that and and could you could you explain that position
2: Oh, man, I'll put my best academic hat on and say I don't agree or disagree with that, right? That there's, it's sort of the position that we that we take of God, all the different things we can go here. Like, what, what do we want golf to be? How do we perceive playing golf? At what level is a sport ranging from a game? Like, I thought your interview with uh, Robert Crosby, Bob Crosby is phenomenal. And you got into the sense of, like, golf as a sport versus golf as an adventure. And we could go down all those rabbit holes as much as possible but i'll start with like just to thing about like okay in terms of the pro game on the typical tpc golf course angles and that sort of stuff even on a even on a soft trinity force let's say you know, something that's not super firm and the ball's not getting away angles don't matter i mean it's an aerial game they they're playing along the y-axis they know how far their ball carries uh picking up you know trying to move over to an angle, but then having some of your shot dispersion play into a bunker, that's just, that's not smart, right? You're better keeping that entire shot dispersion out of the bunker and playing to the the lowest, uh, basically your lowest expected value. I saw that conversation with Scott and some other people, you know, the idea of blackjack was brought up and just it's a probability model is what it is, especially when there's no variable of a ground game, right? And that your angle coming into a green I mean, how often do we see on the pro game where there's a pin cut beside behind some slope where coming from that angle over the slope, you can't stop the ball at the pin? You just don't see that out there, right? And that's the beauty of Lynx Golf, where you do have that. And you also have playing corridors that allow that, right? You can have an 80 to 90 yard corridor where an average shot dispersion for a driver is anywhere from, you know, 60 to 75 yards. So you need that playing corridor to move that around if you're thinking just strictly from the analytical probability model you need a huge corridor and and uh and you need the angle to actually matter so you need the turf conditions or the playing conditions to matter uh, or at least yardage differences to matter to um, you know some dog legs could get into it like a dog leg with a center line bunker combined with it you might be able to make up some differences there uh,
1: so uh, should i guess there are two different questions here should a player it sounds like it depends on the course for you and it depends on the conditions but uh the one question is should a player ever find himself or herself in the position of preferring a side of the fairway in order to find a good angle into into the green is that ever a tactically sound approach to a golf hole and then the other question implied on the other side of it is should architects be designing courses that supposedly summon these decisions
2: oh yeah so yeah should you do that it's rare that you should actually be hunting angles i mean i'll echo scott fawcett on that right like it's just there's typically just not enough width where it actually matters you can't control your ball flight that well so don't be like oh i'm gonna hug this bunker over here because now you're just bringing in the bunker where I mean, aim down the fairway and just play to that. And then half your shots are going to end up over there and you'll get the good angle. The other half are not the good angle, but guess what? Likely the conditions are going to afford you playing a direct shot to the hole anyways, if you're a high-level player on a typical course on what in terms of what they play, right? Now, I mean, should how to design against that? It's, I mean, one aspect of it, it's really hard because playable width, right? Like in terms of a player's dispersion, the designing for that, how wide a hole would have to be. That's a really hard thing to design towards, but you can do it. Like what you're looking for, and this relates to a point, Garrett, that you made in the uh, sort of drivable par four um, article that you made of okay, like what would a, a good like mathematical hole be that includes decision making? And this could be because of angles or it could be because of distance on the Y axis, how far do I push up and back, right? like. I'll use a very simplistic version where there's just two options, right? The a really cool mathematical whole design that would actually make people think that follow, you know, some of the stuff I teach, and obviously Scott, what Scott teaches and some other people. The, the in those two options, they need to come out to the same average. So we'll just make up they come out to a four average. And for simplicity's sake, we say, well, one option every player would make a four from, and the other option every player would make a three or five from. So you'd see the same average between the two options, but you'd see bigger variance in one of the options versus the other. One being a safe option where, hey, not much variance in your scoring. You kind of know what you're gonna score from there. And then huge variance in the other option. And we could extrapolate that across, you know, three or four different options of playing a hole in a different variance that you would see. Now, So in terms of strategy and mathematics, that would be an ideal hole to design, which you could do by taking a look at strokes gain and positioning hazards, think of like where your ball lands, you have an expected value from it, and what kind of hazards could we put around those to change that to some number? And then if we pull back, okay, what could we do from there to make it so it plays the same average as that other area? Uh, and you could go through and design a course like that. I have no idea how interesting that would come out or what. And again, we're designing for the top 0.01% of golfers. Is that something we really want to go down? Like, I don't care what people say when, and say, oh, change happens or whatever. It's like, no, the top level game matters. It influences the entire rest of the game. People watch it. People pay attention to it. Golf clubs strive to be what tour courses are. Uh, I mean, they're the they're for better or worse a big vocal part of our game. The top level players and what they do. So we can't ignore that. Uh, so I hesitate to ever put down on paper what you know what it could be because I mean that's Pandora's box. Like if we put it down, and as soon as we start going down that level or that road, I don't know if we end up in somewhere we want to be. Uh, those of us that think about golf also as the game, as the adventure, as you like to talk about, which which I really really care to do, and I really value, and think that's a that's what ultimately is healthy for the game is that aspect of it, because we're not we're not tour players. Um, my game looks nothing like a lot of college coaches, a lot of college co- uh, kids I work with, and it definitely looks nothing like a tour player's game. And I'm an okay golfer, so I hesitate to ever, to ever, yeah, push towards something that really just privileges the pro game.
0: Yeah, talk about how um, strategy is different for say the lower trajectory, lower spin players. And do you have any experience, say, like contrast? Um, have you ever advised on like a LPGA player, or semester tour player, or even a a, a women's college team and compare and contrast that with the elite men's game whether it be college or professional
2: yeah you see a couple different things the most striking is honestly dispersion a little bit lower spin lower trajectory player and i'm thinking primarily an lpga game uh, a college female game here that the dispersion is tighter uh, especially playing in the greens with irons and even off the tees because I mean, I'm not super well-versed in terms of engineering and physics. I did a physics background as my bachelor's degree, but that doesn't make me an expert. So I can't. Everything I'm doing is kind of spitballing a little bit from just talking. You're not Bryson. Yeah, we'd need to invite on Bryson. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. I should. I should. No man can be everything.
2: If I adopted his attitude, I would just sit here and just pull up a chalkboard and start talking about I don't know optimal spin rates or something. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, they're they're a lot tighter. So. In that way, there's a little bit, honestly, less strategy involved in that it's easier to just say like, hey, you hit it really, really straight and playing in, now playing into the green, there's a little bit more thinking to be done because pin positions matter a little bit more, conditioning matters a little bit more, slopes matter a little bit more. When you play into the green at a lower, lower trajectory and the ball is going to be on the ground and running a little bit, where the ball lands matters a little bit more and understanding that, okay... The short shot in my dispersion pattern, here's the consequences of it. The long shot in my dispersion pattern, here's the consequences of it. What does this mean for playing into this green and how I need to play into, say, a front pin, back pin, left, right, and so on. And you compare that versus uh, a tour player that's stopping things primarily with trajectory, and those questions aren't playing into the green or no, longer as, or no longer as much of a concern because we're stopping it with trajectory and the conditions are allowing that when the ball comes in. It's it's kind of settling down where it is, right? Even in terms of my own game, like that's the transition I've seen a lot in it that playing into a green, it's just, I don't have to think too much. Like I don't have to worry about the ball getting away from me once it gets on the ground, uh, which is, you know, very different from experience that say overseas. Uh, I think that's a little bit more akin, you know, if you think of a PGA Tour player playing overseas on really, really firm conditions, that may be more akin to an LPGA player and how they're playing into the greens. But again, it's a great example of how technology has helped the highest swing speeds. Right, that's where you see the biggest dividends in terms of uh, in terms of what we see.
0: Yeah, and I mean, in terms of like the since two thousand three, LPGA tour players have only gained three yards of distance compared to eighteen on the web, which mm-hmm. would would point towards you know this. It in a way, it's from what I'm gathering it's becoming the distance is creating more interest from the pro game off the tee and less into the green whereas the women's game would have more less interest off the tee more interest into the green and then not
2: yeah definitely more strategy thinking in the green just more variability that's there
0: so it with with regards to like the normal person let's just would you say, obviously, dispersions get wider with handicap levels, but also okay. swing speeds create lower trajectories, you know, like lower swing speeds, lower trajectories, less spin. Is strategy for your regular golfer more or less important um, than the, the Tour Pro?
2: Now, do you more or less important? Is the question
0: I'm saying would it, it strategy have more impact on the high level pro or the, you know, 10, 15 handicap at the club?
2: I, I mean, in terms of that, well, yes, yeah, just mathematically it has to, right? There's more to be gained at a, at a 15 handicapper in terms of improving their game. And there's a lot of things you can do to see pretty significant dividends right away. Right, just sitting down and playing around with them and looking at the decisions they make. It's all with a 15 handicapper. You can almost guarantee saving them one to two shots just strictly on what they're trying to accomplish when they're hitting a golf shot. Right. Use my dad as an example. You know, he's getting older, and you know, 220, 210 used to be a shot he would get to the green every time, and now he tries to pull out the three wood and hit it, and it just doesn't do anything positive. So when I or whatever I'm playing with him in like a best ball event, it's like that. Just hit it up there 180 yards and play from there, right? And the scoring average comes down. It's pretty natural. Uh, And also just every player, good or bad, thinks they hit tighter golf shots than they do. So definitely just in terms of a dispersion pattern for any handicapper to understand, like, okay, on your best day, uh, the quote I always use is, on your best day, you're worse than you think you are. Because your dispersion pattern is always in play. Like even on our best rounds in our life, we typically hit a foul ball somewhere. We just often forget about it because we hit it from the trees and made a birdie. Uh, so, so that's something they can always take into play. On the flip side of that, at the top level, everything exists on the margins. It's essentially F1 racing at the pro level or high level college, uh, at the top level of college, because you can't gain a shot. You just can't. You're already, you know, the top level college players already shooting 69, 70, 68, 66, 65, 67. It's just, you're not going to pick up a full shot somewhere, but you have to pick up a 10th of a shot or a fifth of a shot or a half of a shot over the course of one round or two rounds. Uh, So just in terms of an absolute difference, I mean, it definitely can make more uh, progress at the top or at the higher handicap level than the lower handicap level. But It's still making a difference.
1: So taking a step back from the kind of business of applying analytics to course management, um, I think your relationship to golf is, is really interesting. You know, obviously we've, we've, we've talked a lot about these issues and you are maybe more romantic about golf than anybody I know. You just love it. You, you, you believe yeah. in the spirit of the game, you love the walk, you love the adventure, and that comes through in, in everything you do and say. But at the same time, you are very well qualified in mathematics, in analytics, and you are on a, a venture right now to demystify the strategy of the game right? Which is essentially a, a rationalist enterprise. Yeah. Um, do you ever feel those two parts of yourself coming into conflict?
2: The short answer is yes. In a lot of ways though, yeah. So like this is what romanticism versus rationalism in a lot of ways. Uh, and what's cool is, you know, we create these dichotomies as if they're opposed. A lot of times they work together or in fact coexist. So Golf is one of the, I think golf, I mean, golf is a great example of that for so many reasons, especially the personal venture of it. But if we think of it like the romanticism, rationalism sort of ideas on it. So in terms of the the romantic aspect, yes, we have this huge emotional attachment. Golf is an adventure and it takes us on this sort of spiritual, soulful walk that makes us challenge ourselves and really pulls out the worst of us and the best of us all at once, right? really exposes our ego, um, our moral character, uh, everything that we do in it, right? We're always facing difficulties, having successes, and having to respond to those. But at the same time, like when we think about it, especially the, a lot of the conversations, you know, the three of us have and amongst our friends and ourselves, you can't just rely on those responses to dictate, well, what's good for the game? What's good for me as a person? You know, what's healthy? Because right, addiction is a great example of if you don't question things, it's easy to become addicted to something because you just, yeah, this is great, this is great, this is great, like stimulus, 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 and all of a sudden you're addicted to whatever it is that you're getting involved with. And golf's the same way where we have to think about, okay, well, what is, in terms of the intent in the game and the things that enable it to have this character in this soul, like what enables that? And now that moves into more of a rationalist you know, rationalism type of mindset where I need to break down my own thinking, my own experiences and what contributes to those. And so I can take the same aspect with the strategy side of it where, yes, there's some days where it's like, man, especially as I'm doing like a Reese Jones course or something where it's just like, what am am I doing here? This is, this is boring. This is not enjoyable for me. Yes. This is challenging for the players and creates the good par score or whatever it is you want to say it does. But what's going on here, and that gives me an opportunity to inject some of the ro- romanticism of the game into it when I'm working with especially individual players to help help them understand the architecture that's there, what they're seeing on the golf hole, what makes a, what makes really a compelling golf hole versus what makes something that's just very formulaic. Uh, and help clarifying their own thinking. You know, these, like, even these top-level players, they'll build play um, say a Cora Crenshaw, a Pinehurst, a Pine Valley, a I don't know, name your pasta tempo that say they'll play those and just think man what an awesome experience that was that was that was amazing but then they'll go play all their tournament golf courses and to them that's also a great experience or whatever so helping them be reflective and, you know, and thinking about like what was so amazing about pasta tempo you, pasta tempo you said you love that why did you love that so much so i enjoyed the sort of, sort of teaching aspect side of Uh, the strategy management where i can take it a little deeper than just how to play a golf course but also thinking about the design of a golf course what goes into it and what really piques their interest the most uh you know so that moves from that kind of blends the two together to maybe help them become more romantic with the game in terms of the course design and understanding why why architecture is important even if it doesn't challenge their game right if they go play a Corey Credshaw, that's not set up very difficult. It's not going to challenge them much. Uh, but they can still hopefully appreciate the golf course for why it's there outside of their own uh, own golf game playing it. and even experience the experience or even enjoy the experiences that they had and say, hey, I shot 62 there, but the Andes adjusted par score uh, point, maybe 62 was my adjusted par for that golf course because of the playing conditions that were there. And yeah, that wedge shot that I had to take off a backboard and suck back, yeah, it was easy to get to five feet, but that was awesome to do. And I should get that to five feet, but if I would have messed it up, I would have sucked it back off the green. Uh, and I would have not made birdie. So, you know, get them to appreciate those sorts of things. Uh, it, it's something that I enjoy doing as part of the, uh, the analytic side of things.
0: So on the shotgun, sorry, I started said something about making Dunhill a par 67 for the pros. And if, if they had done that, the winning score would have been, I think two under. Would Rory have had the same comments if the winning score was two under?
2: Rory, I don't know if he would have because I do believe a lot of his reaction was in the moment being frustrated with his own finishes. I do think he's also smart enough to be like, yeah, hard doesn't matter. Uh, so I'm sure he probably wouldn't have had the same reaction, but I know a lot of A a lot of people, it would, and a lot of tour players, it would influence their reaction, what par was, right? Like, if you change par to on them, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a hard hole becomes easy or an easy hole becomes hard. Um, It was at, I forget what tournament it was last year, and I was sitting there, and there was a college team talking about it, and they changed the par five to a par four, and one of the players was like, Man, that hole's so hard. And it used to be an easy par five, and like, it's like, No, it's the same hole it's literally the same hole that's there. So, uh, so yeah, definitely par. I mean, even on the psychology side, right. The loss averse sort of nature of people changes how they play, even though it shouldn't, it still does.
1: So what are some of your thoughts about how professional golf could be more interesting than it is now? Or maybe you think that professional golf still, still is interesting in a sense, but In what you're saying before about um, the differences between competitive and recreational golf and the places of a a rationalist approach and a romantic approach in one or the other, it struck me that in competitive golf, there is a distinct lack of mystery and, and romance about it, that so much is known now about the golf swing and about course management for instance that players are very rarely at a loss players are very rarely dealing with ambiguity and mystery and there is a kind of business like efficiency in the way that the best players approach golf and it to me it reads very clearly through the television that that's happening and it makes me lose a little bit of interest does it make you lose interest in in the same way um and if not why um and then and what are some of your thoughts about how some some intrigue and and mystery could return to the game
2: i mean we got to start talking more about air density and what that does to
1: the <laughs> <laughs> uh- that's what the people want right
2: <laughs> uh no oh man this is so, I mean, a lot of personal preference is going to come out here in terms of yes to all of those points. But I'm not, I'm in terms of ex, um, explaining my personal preference, it's not like, oh, this is going to solve all the problems. It's more like, I think it actually would support this more exploration uh, or re-exploration of the game and, and what it means to optimize it. Right, where, okay, I'll start with this as one of the pieces of evidence and the premise for it. So, With distance gains, distance gains aren't absolute. They're relative, right? So it's not like, oh, all of us shifted up 10 yards. No, that's not how it works. If that's how it worked, you know, that wouldn't be such a big deal. But it's like, no, you have, you know, maybe I gained five, but someone ahead of me gained eight yards. And someone maybe ahead of that because of ball speed gained 12 yards, right? So, like, the absolute differences between the distance, um, the the distance differences have grown and increased, right? Which, in terms of, like, the spirit of, yeah, I believe – Yes, pros play a different game, but it's much cooler when we kind of, it kind of resembles what the game we play, right? So we lose that there uh, on one piece of the argument. So I would like to see that shrunk down. So that obviously brings in the idea of rollback in some sort of form, regardless if it's shrunken driver heads, wild and ball, persimmon, ballada, hickories, whatever. We could sit here and argue all day about what we want to go back to. Uh, but I do, I do think there's some viability in that in that argument uh, in terms of rolling back to something and changing the technology somehow if if the, some of the principles that are wrapped up in the game are something we really value and want to see in the pro game as well and now on the flip side of that this idea of exploration and and optimization and just making the game inquisitive again I would I could see that as a significant strength that movement and actually doing it because it would even for the OEMs open up a whole new revenue in pursuit right oh shoot we're going back to this technology. Well, frankly, let's say it's persimmon. Let's just go there. We'll say it's persimmon with um, a lot balls. And that's not a personal preference of mine to go to that version of it, but let's say that's what it is. All of a sudden, everybody in the game of golf at a high level has to think, how do I optimize that technology? Right? What, is, what does my swing speed need to be? Like, Can I actually have this huge swing speed with you know hitting up on the ball, trying to launch at this angle? All that has to be figured out again. And what does that mean in terms of how the game's played? How does course conditioning now play a role in that? It would just sort of open up a new, you know, path to go down and have to figure out, which I think could be, could be exciting. You know, a lot of people talk about, oh, it will turn people from away from the game. And I don't know if I buy that argument. I think Bob spoke to this a little bit on the, on his, his podcast that maybe in the short term, you'd have a few people leave, but really would they? I mean, is, if all of a sudden you put persimmon in a 15 handicapper's hands, is it really going to change their one, just their scoring and how they play the game, but also their enjoyment? Is that are they really playing the game because they have a 460 cc tailor made in their hands, or are they playing it for other reasons? Uh, you know, would and that's and also persimmon has great self-correction off the face. People people think like, oh, the argument for rolling back stuff means like, oh, you're going to hit it 150 yards offline. That's not the case. It actually brings more variability in the Y-axis, if anything, right? That's where we see huge variability. Uh, where with the current drivers, right? It's like, well, I hit the heel, I hit the toe, I hit it off the top of the face, I hit it off the bottom of the face. Oh, I hit on the toe and found the hot spot. I mean, the ball is flying pretty similar distance.
0: Um, it's, I got so many buddies that are relatively new to the game, but young. And they, you know, some of them swing it pretty, pretty like well in terms of speed and the distance that they launched the ball offline is astounding to me. Like, <laughs> I've never seen a ball go so far offline than with one of my buddies. And, yeah. and it's like, and I, I gave him uh, my persimmon driver the last time we played. And he hit like three shots with it. And the worst one was only like 30 yards offline because like it can't go as far offline.
2: I mean, persimmon. Like in terms of the result and the what we're looking for, persimmon were the original twist face, right? <laughs> like, they like they self-corrected balls off of them because of the way the the face was curved with the way the ball performed. Like it worked together. When you hit a toe persimmon, right, it starts right, curves left. If you hit the heel persimmon, it starts left and curves right. Uh, it was just made like just for whatever reason, the materials did that. So yeah, and it that doesn't point. go
1: very far, but it kind of, it stays in play. I, whenever I think of this, I think of this guy that I played with at Tiempo, not somebody that I knew beforehand and he honestly launched 15 balls into the middle of neighborhoods. He was swinging so hard, had no idea where it was going, and the ball went enormously high up into the air and was just dropping bombs in the middle of the surrounding (laughs) neighborhoods at Pasatiempo (laughs) over and over and over again. I was just watching this guy. He needs a driver that doesn't go as far. He would score so much better, and also there would be less death and property damage in the wake of his playing this golf course. (laughs)
2: Well, yeah, and its I mean, how many people even talk about that senior golfer in their league that's 70 and just hits it dead down the middle, 180, hits it up by the green and just whips them to no end, even though they're trying to blast it 270, right? It's like, well, you could kind of have that a little bit more than you do if we made some changes to technology and what it does.
0: I feel like that golfer is like the envy of all golfers too, which is so ironic that like everybody's in this pursuit for hitting it far, but really the golfer they envy the most is the guy that's like the steady grinder at their club. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually absolutely comical.
1: It it seems like a fun way to play the game when you, when you see it in action. Um, and that, that sort of leads me to something I wanted to get your thoughts on. Recently you participated maybe even organized i don't know you seem to be organizing a lot of things these days the oil hardened classic run under the auspices of the eternal summer golf society i believe at sweeten's cove and the notion was to have everybody play with persimmon woods and bladed irons and see what would happen you were involved in this right and uh, and had how was that experience what did you learn from it
2: yeah i can't take credit for organizing that's uh peter schmidt is a good friend of mine writer for wrx um now going to graduate school getting into turf business just a just i mean another just soulful guy that just loves golf for all the right reasons across the board to um an equipment junkie as well all right he is a huge equipment junkie so yeah he and I, I did a little bit of background soundboard for him um in terms of putting it together but definitely his his venture yeah we brought together a bunch of guys just it's exactly what you said. We're going to play Persimmon. We're going to play Blades. Uh, those are the rules. Whatever ball you want, modern or not, that's fine. Every other, you know, rules on board, modern putter, old putter, however you want to do that, that's fine. You know, Jeremy with Louisville Golf um, helped us out, participated in it as well. Uh, and we just brought a guy, I mean, two teams, sort of Ryder Cup style, where we did going back to the spirit of the game, four ball, alternate shot then foursomes in the morning. And we played singles matches in the afternoon and just, and just had a blast, and and I think sweet a place like Sweetens Cove, I and if you talk to me, I talk too much about the place. Uh, uh, you know, it's one of it's one of my spirit courses. In love with it, um, just appreciate what Rob, Patrick, and Tad, and everybody created there. But playing a place like that, I think, really helps accentuate the benefits of playing the golf that style with the trajectory, the the run out, the ground game a little bit more. Just how much you how much more you notice. You know, I've played. I don't know how many times I've gone around Sweeten's. probably a hundred at this point or so. Uh, And and that was honestly, I've never seen it in that way. Um, I've played hickories on it. I'm not a great Hickory golfer, so I can't, I'm sure Tad King has already seen Sweeten's the way I saw it with persimmons. Uh, But it was just fascinating how much more of the ground you saw with the ball rolling, how much more thinking you had to do playing in the greens, uh, playing just set up shots there, that sort of stuff. It was absolutely fascinating.
1: And I heard you played pretty well.
2: Yeah, I, sh- I broke the 30 barrier for my first time ever on and Cove. What?
1: I didn't know you played that well.
2: I shot, at tw- I shot a 29, and I missed two 10-footers. Uh, shout out to Dan Nelson, one of my opponent in that match, and fellow New Club guy. Uh, he came out, and he was going nuts too early, uh, the both of us. And uh, for whatever reason, he just sparked a fire under me, and we just had a blast. Oh, my god!
0: It's, it's amazing that you shot your, your lowest 9 ever and you felt yourself having you know part of me sometimes feels i i play with old equipment half sets I, i actually didn't play with like a conventional set from march till uh till what is it august this year and what i find is i'm so much more mentally stimulated in the round when i play with non just straight modern and what that does is that it keeps me in the round more did you feel that way
2: absolutely 100 uh, percent. like yourself i'm a huge half set player for the exact reason that you're speaking of where i just take out half of half the of, uh, clubs in my bag and play other things and this uh, and i learned this from like vision 54 is a good group they talk about in terms of training to be a good golfer uh You have to learn to hit golf shots right and part of learning to hit golf shots and i mean shots that shape that play that play to a distance that's not natural for that club you have to think about the implications of that where is this going to land how is this going to run out what's my miss going to be all those things come into into the mind where now it's like okay, i have to control the trajectory what trajectory do i want to come in at and when you're playing a course like a sweeten's cove or uh you know think of your favorite firm and fast golf course Uh, probably a place like Shinnecock, right? Those questions actually matter or the old course. uh, And you have to think about those. I mean, one of the things I was just talking with a college coach recently, uh, that's both a friend and a a colleague of mine. And we were just talking about how college, a lot of college kids, even your best kids don't know how to hit golf shots, right? They can have a wedge in their hand. And if it's not the exact yardage they need, they're somewhat stabbing in the dark or they're just going full bore at everything. So even something as simple as like, hey, go play with the half set because now when you're 160 and your nine iron's not in your bag, you have to think, well, do I do something with the wedge? Do I do something with the eight iron? What do I have to do with this club to make it go the distance, land where I want it to be, and do what I wanted to do when it hits the ground? Uh, and to me, that is just – it's just more interesting golf. Uh, I just find that to be you know, more pure form of golf because it just engages the mind so much more because uh, it engages both my analytical and just sort of creative – multiple options mind.
1: So to get more specific about that, if you were to put on your analytics hat, if you were to say, prepare a a course guide for Sweeten's Cove for yourself using modern equipment versus one where you were using the equipment that you used at the oil hardened classic persimmon and, and bladed irons what would be the differences between those those course guides from a a statistical perspective
2: yeah so one thing i'll never do a course guide for sweeten's cove that is my escape so i will never have <laughs> anybody that wants me to do one that, you're I not going to violate will it will in that way huh? i will not violate it that's i even feel bad when i do the little videos of it i'm like okay oh, well, well let's call so it specific, let's call but. it
1: a uh, athens country club or, or something like okay. that let's let yeah. you know, another course any other course
2: yeah, so, all right, so I will say this. With irons, like even blade irons, not much is different, right? The current irons are really very similar to the old irons. There's not a huge change in those when you're talking, taking into account the modern ball. Now, if we're talking if we wound the ball back a little bit with a ball with more curvature on it, things do have to be thought about a little bit differently because, and this is actually one of the open questions why I always say I don't have an answer because I honestly wonder what does the dispersion pattern look like if we were had a seven iron with a wound golf ball? right? Does our left to right dispersion change significantly? And more importantly, does our dispersion within it change? Do our percentages change where like our 50% of balls are a little wider, a little more narrow, like those questions would have to be thought out. And I don't have an answer to those. Uh, cause honestly I've just never sat down with hundred wound balls and hit seven irons to see what would happen versus my seven iron and or grabbed a, you know, a, a B Todd or something like that and said, Hey, hit these seven irons for me and I'll hit your seven iron. and see the differences. And in the same level, like persimmon to like the modern driver, I think what changes there is a little bit of how the ball flies. It's not going to have as much carry. Uh, and for me personally, it's going to have a little bit more run out. So I'm going to have to think about that now. Like, okay, this ball is going to be on the ground a little bit more. It's going to have some curvature on it. When my ball gets on the ground running, if this thing's firm and fast, where's that ball going to run to? And what are my consequences of that? Now, if we're on a soft course, I'm going to be honest, the ball's not running much. I, there's not too much to think about. You just, where's this ball going to land? And that's all I need to know. And I'll design everything based on that. And my distance might be a little less with the persimmon, but guess what? Like my dispersion is probably going to still be pretty similar and the way the holes are played are going to be pretty similar other than adjusting for distances. But you start putting it firm and fast and the ball's curving. Now, you know, it's the whole point that's made. Once that ball's out of the, on the ground and out of your control, that's, that's where things can get scary. So you have to think about that a bit more.
1: So as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, Kevin is going to be joining us at the Thoroughbred uh, Friday egg event held at Aiken Golf Club. Um, Kevin, you're a resident of the, of the South. You've been to Aiken Golf Club. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on that course? And, uh, you know, are you going to, are you going to come up with a course guide before you arrive?
2: <laughs> I think so I've only been to Aiken once, you know, I think we went on two loops. I was actually over there with, a. Uh... mutual friend of jason way and his uh his son and then dave uh i think his last name is Is it i think that's right
0: um
2: thinking yes uh just an absolute pleasurable day but you know i have the role of only playing it once i still haven't unlocked its secrets so i don't want to say a whole lot about it until i played a couple more times but i gotta admit it was it was special it had it was almost like walking back in time in a lot of ways. I felt like I was back in Pinehurst like in the 1950s or how Pinehurst would have felt in the 50s with just this sand, sort of sand hill, sand belt style golf course weaving through a neighborhood with just aggressively cool contours throughout the entire course, especially playing into the greens. I mean, I'll never forget the 15th green. It reminded me of this Walter Travel, Travis green up at Cape Arendelle that was just had this huge tier kind of cutting right through the middle of it where you walk up and you're like, that's just the coolest green site to put that there and and place that down and just made you think about like, okay, again, I can't control my angle, but if I'm on this side of the fairway, like how I'm going to have to play into that green versus if I end up on that side of the fairway, what I'm going to have to do and how can I use the ground um, to help it out? So I'm just, yeah, really looking forward to getting back to it and and getting to experience it again and just having it come alive. uh, as I'm actually...
0: Curious about this with that hole being like 270 yards or 260. Could you technically actually control your angle into that green with like a 40 yard wide fairway, knowing well, if, that you could go wedge, wedge.
2: If you could go wedge, wedge. So at a wedge you're looking at, I mean, you're still getting up pretty good. I don't remember the specific numbers off my head, but it's like a 25 yard window uh, that you're still operating at. So a little bit yeah you control it right now yes okay the cool thing about a wedge is like 75 percent of your balls are gonna end up on a pretty tight window so yeah a little bit with a wedge wedge you can control it a bit more now but my analytics hat on is i'll I'll echo i guess scott fawcett here and be like yeah but you're playing to a worse score yeah but to me that's still golf right i go around sweetens a lot of times when i'm playing there and I'm not playing to my best overall score. I'm playing to my best score along a certain path. I'm trying to execute every shot as best I can along a certain path. And that's, to me, that's still golf. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to shoot 29 doing that.
0: When there's aggressive contours and firm conditions, and all of a sudden then angles matter a lot more, how does that relate to like the general formula? Does it throw it out of whack? Is, it, is this one of the reasons we see in like open championships, you know, a leaderboard that's distinctly different than a PGA Tour setup?
2: Yeah, the two biggest variables are wind and firmness, right? Because once the ball is on the ground, you unless you have a nice topographical map of what it's going to do and you have a system that would tell you where the ball is going to land, it's almost impossible to design for lowest expected score. Perfectly right to say, yes, this is definitely where you want to play because when the ball hits here, here's all the possible runouts. You know, that's what matters. Now, I think what this really speaks to is also what I believe is a true, a true, the true spirit of the game and aspect of it too. And, and, uh, you know, my fifth time I've mentioned Bob Crosby's uh podcast with Garrett that he spoke on this too. Golf is not about fairness, right? Variability, chance, rub of the green, and luck should be part of it. And that's if you look up how a game is defined. Uh, I think under the definition, you even have chance or luck as part of defining a game or sport and, and its outcome, right? It's an or, it's skill, like athleticism or luck. So you should have all aspects involved with it because part of golf is also, it's egocentrism, right? It's dealing with your own ego to accept, hey, yes, I hit the perfect shot there. I got a bounce that put me in the road hole in the bunker, and that's just what it is, and I have to deal with that. I have to get over that. I have to move on hit the next shot, realizing that was a one in a million break that was bad. But I need to bounce back for it and, and still try to score the best I can from the next shot. And I think that's a critical, important element of the game that makes it more interesting. That go hit it great one day, shoot thirty eight. Go hit it great the next day and shoot twenty nine. That's just, is it, uh, I think that's beautiful.
0: Isn't that crazy though? Like we we have when there's a center line bunker or a green that might be difficult. Players now complain about you know, getting it removed, but in football, a punter that get, hits a perfect punt that gets a bad bounce and goes into the end zone for a touchback doesn't ever complain after the game about the oblong shape of a football and ask for it to be perfectly round.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, right? In terms of, I always... I always think about just what golf exposes in terms of our personal preferences and the way we're able to deal with adversity right and golf just really i think especially golf at the high level game exposes that and it's easy to to coddle to a top level player right and i mean it's easy to buy into that mindset i'm sure i bought into that mindset when i was a college golfer of like yes this should be fair like this should be straightforward when i hit a good shot i should be rewarded but over time i've come to realize like no that's You know, part of the game does reward good shots, but it's okay when those aren't always rewarded. But still, your ability to rebound after that. And why do we think places like Shinnecock and Augusta, especially when Augusta's firm, like why is that the most compelling golf to watch? I think it's because as a both as a player as well as a spectator, we get that element. We get that luck element when Tiger hits it in the middle of trees, but then plays it off a bounce. And one time on eleven, it bounces perfectly down in the middle of the green, and the other time it bounces off to the right of eleven. Now he's face with a tough up and down like that variability makes golf much more compelling than a point and shoot model uh in my personal opinion
1: all right great thank you so much kevin um we'll see you very very soon uh the event's coming up i'm really looking forward to that
2: yeah of course look forward to seeing you all there and everybody else coming naked you've been listening to the fried egg podcast we do the digging for you